Good evening, everybody. Welcome back. Welcome to Class 2 of the Book of Lost Tales, Part 2, as we prepare to finish uh, the Tale of Tenuviel this evening. Uh, first off, let me uh, apologize. I have... Uh, I'm struggling to get over a pretty bad head cold this week, uh, so I hope my voice won't get too painful to listen to. It's been okay so far, but uh, 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 we'll see what happens. Um, so anyway, uh, I, I apologize for not being in peak condition here tonight. Um, but uh, anyhow, so <clears throat> I, I before we start, two quick announcements. Uh, first, as I mentioned last time, I just wanted to remind you, uh, especially those of you who are in uh, the American Northeast, uh, that we are now 10 days away from our Lord of the Rings movie marathon in Arlington, Massachusetts, uh, in Boston. Um, so I, 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 it's going to be, it's going to be really great. Uh, I'm, uh, really excited. We've had a, you know, a bunch of new signups this week and, uh, a bunch of people I'm really excited to see, uh, folks I haven't seen in a few years, um, who are going to be able to, um, uh, uh, who are who are going to be joining us? So uh, you know, definitely, if you're in the area, Nancy says it's not a great time to go to Boston. I don't know what you're talking about. Like four feet of snow is a great time to come to Boston. Um, roads are fine. Roads are fine now. It's all good. Um, but uh, <laughs> anyway, um, it, it, it's I, I understand. I understand. Um, but uh, especially if you know if you're in the Northeast anyway. I mean, seriously. Like, what's the harm? Um, but anyway, I, I, I'm, I, uh, I strongly recommend you look into this. I think it should be it should be a, a, a great time. So, um, so please do look into that. If you know people up in the area, you know, definitely spread the word. Um, you know, we're uh, we're uh, you know, the more the merrier uh, at an event like that. It should be it should be a lot of fun. So. Um, the, uh, the second announcement, and this is just sort of an ongoing thing that I don't think I've mentioned here in the Academy before, but I wanted to mention, um, uh, a new sort of, uh, fun initiative we've been doing at Mythgard over the last couple months, um, has been a, uh, a kinship that we've started up on the Lord of the Rings Online, uh, the, 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 the video game. Um, it's been really cool. I have, um, I got a chance to meet the uh, the senior Lord developer um, uh, at Turbine, the company who makes the the Lord of the Rings Online, last August, and I was just really, really impressed by his work um, and the 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 really interesting thought that they've put into you know the care that they have put into in adapting Tolkien's work into that video game world, um, and um, I've been. Um, so I, you know, I was I was uh, convinced finally to log in and see it myself, and I've been really blown away. It's really cool, um, and uh, so we've actually started. Do we have not only uh, a Mythgard kinship and a bunch of Mythgard people um, sort of hanging out uh, in game together, but um, I've also begun doing weekly sort of mini lectures and uh, uh, sort of combined with uh, uh, questing trips and skirmishes and things like that um, in game uh, every Monday night. We call it Mythgard Mondays. Uh, in Lotro. Um, so if you happen to play The Lord of the Rings online um, and, uh, uh, and, you want to, uh, and you want to join us or hear what it's all about, I actually just gave a talk uh, in the game <clears throat> this past Monday. We had an audience, a live audience uh, of about between 60 and 70 people um, all uh, sitting around uh, in the uh, uh, in the courtyard outside the Burden Baby pub in Mickledelving in, 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 in the West Farthing. Uh, it was really, it was really fun. It was really neat. Um, so anyway, I've been really enjoying my time there talking about the, you know, b b 
sort of exploring the game world and 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 talking about the the some of the choices they've made and and the way that they've developed some of their stories and the adaptations that they've done um i think um i think it's been it's it's been something i've been really enjoying and uh so i just wanted to let you guys know people who have played the game if you didn't know that we were doing that i wanted to make make sure you guys did know so you can connect with us there sort of another way uh for us to kind of explore tolkien's world together um nick we're on the landreval server um is where the mythgard kinship is located and where so it's the landreval right now um the schedule might change a little bit down the road um we're gonna start doing some live streaming um of our lotro events um through turbines uh, official channels actually we've been talking to, with the turbine people and they want to work with us on that so we're gonna hopefully make that happen sometime in the next couple months but uh, but for now uh, we meet on the Landreval server at the Burden Baby pub in Mickle Delving um, at 9 30 p.m. Eastern time um, uh, on, on Monday nights as I said so um, so definitely join us Nick look us up we're the Mythgard kinship um, uh, and uh, you know if you've got any uh, if you've got any alts who aren't in the kinship we'd, we'd, we'd love to have you come join us uh, it's been uh, it's been a lot of fun um, uh, my character's name is Wigand by the way w i g e n d uh, this is a this was sort of a, 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 a kind of a Tolkien a general Tolkien themed idea um, uh, it's the name, the word, it's just an Anglo-Saxon word that means warrior, because um, he's he's a guardian, so, you know, I was making a warrior character, and I'm like, I'll name him warrior in Anglo-Saxon. That's just what Tolkien would do. Um, <laughs> so anyway, Wigand is my character on Landreval. Um, so, uh, so definitely, definitely look us up. Um, it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. So, okay. Um, and I know a couple of you, Yana and Kay, have both uh, joined, and I've, I, I've seen them... Uh, <laughs> a lot. Uh, Kay says she got her uh, reading done in no time this week uh, by reading while sw- while swimming around in Lake Evendim. Uh, yeah, yeah, Kay, you can uh, certainly get some stuff done while swimming from one end of Lake Evendim to another. Uh, I've uh, I've been there. I know I know just what you're talking about. Uh, Lake Everswim, as people in the game tend to call it. Um, but uh, anyway, those are my two announcements for this week. Now let's um. Uh, first of all, w- w- one last quick, very quick question. I think some people are having some uh, some audio problems. I just wanted to make sure most of you can hear me. I don't see any issue on my end, but I just wanted to make sure that at least most of you can hear me. Um, okay, okay, good, good. Excellent. All right. Um, then... Uh, then let's 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 move along. Let's get back to um, let's get back to the tale of Tenuviel. So, one quick thing I wanted to clarify before we jump back into the text here, um, I want to make sure that there's no misunderstanding about what I'm what I'm either what I'm saying or what I'm implying about the tale of Tenuviel in particular and the Book of Lost Tales in general. Um, when I'm doing the contrast with the Silmarillion, in particular, the kind of things that we were discussing about the Tale of Tenuvio last time, um, and the particular ways in which it is different from the sort of the overall quality of the Silmarillion story. And I realize even that word, quality, is perhaps ambiguous in exactly the way that I'm talking about. I don't want pe- I don't want you to think that I'm either criticizing or or, or worse mocking the tale of Tenuviel, uh In contrast, my point is not at all um, to say that this is just like an inferior, shoddy piece of work compared to the Silmarillion later on. Now, 
Do I think the Silmarillion version is better? Yeah, sure, of course I do. I think it's better. Um, and I think that many of the changes that he makes are changes for the for the better. And yeah, this is only a, ru- a rough draft and all that kind of thing. But that's not my point, really. Um, and, and, and I want to make sure that it's clear that that's not my point. Even when I said just a second ago that there's a different quality, and I don't mean quality in the sense of, like, it's better or worse. I mean, there's just a different a different tone. It has a different nature than the Silmarillion story does. And I'm trying to identify that particular... The, the quality that makes the tale of Tenuviel different from uh, the story in the Silmarillion, because I find that pretty striking. And what's more... I think it's a really cool place to start. I mean, of course we started because it's chapter one of this book, but um, but I think it, it makes a pretty good launching off point um, for this class, joining the Book of Lost Tales kind of in the middle, as it were, because through this, I think the Tale of Tenuvial, um serves in part, at least kind of thematically in some sort of sense, as a kind of uh, recap of what we saw before, because I think the relationship between the tale of Tenuvio and the Silmarillion story of Baron and Luthien is similar, sort of parallel to the overall difference in quality or flavor between the Book of Lost Tales as a whole and the later Silmarillion as a whole. Um, you know, I, I, it's 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 you know, I, I, they're not identical. I mean, they're they're not different in all of the same ways. Um, but I think there are some parallels there that make this a really interesting place to start because it, it, it sort of can remind us of things that we saw back in part one, you know, when we did the, the, uh, the, the first volume of the Book of Lost Tales and then sort of prepare us uh, for, for moving forward. Um, I, I think that, the, you know, and of course we're, we're going to continue discussing this tonight, looking at sort of where this story is going and how it differs, and in particular, you know, the first uh, uh, eight, or no, six, sorry, the first six passages that I want to look at, um, that's up through the scene with Tenuviel uh, before Melko. Um, it's, it's, it's in particular that that tone, and it's the way that the whole... See, notice I keep using words like quality, tone, flavor, register of this story, and I hope you see what I'm trying to get at here. It's not about the details being different. Um, it's about the overall approach, the overall feel of this story is just different, which suggests to me this is a different kind of story. We have, and, our, and, 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 and the story seems to demand that we have a different kind of relationship with it than the Silmarillion story asks us to have with it. Um, and so that's, you know, my goal for this, again, is not to suggest or, or, or claim that the older version is, is merely inferior or immature or something like that. Um, because I don't think that's the case. There are places where you can go through Tolkien's draft to, and see, okay, I see this is the f- his first kind of groping at this story that's going to mature and grow into this much better thing later on, right? Um, there are places where you can simply see things like that happening. With the Tale of Tenuvio, I actively would disagree with somebody who said that. I mean, yes, of course, there are moments and there are t- where we can see it's going to improve and get better, but again, it's not just going to get better, because that sort of suggests it's um, it's the same kind of thing, just more effective, right? 
Um, like, he's trying to achieve the same ends in both stories. He's just doing a better job of it in the one story than he is in the other. But I don't think that's the situation at all. I think the tale of Tenuviel and the story, you know, the Lay of Lathian, the story of Baron and Luthien, um, are really trying to achieve different ends. Um, you know, they're stories that are pointed in, 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 in kind of different directions. And that's what I'm most interested in looking at, is trying to understand what is the direction that the tale of Tenuvio is pointed at. Because that, I think, is going to... Trying to sort that out is going to help us understand better what this whole thing is about. You know, what what were lost, the... What was the Book of Lost Tales, right? Um, when we're looking... Because what we're looking at here is Tolkien's first attempt to build his mythology, right? His first attempt... Um, you know... It, Remember uh, the famous line from the preface to the second edition of the Fellowship of the Ring, that little prefatory sort of letter that he wrote at the beginning, um, the one where he talks about like how no, no, it's not World War Two uh, and everything. Um, it's the, the 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 bit that has his famous part about how he dislikes allegory and and uh, uh, and how people confuse applicability with allegory. Um, in that um, in that passage as well, he remember he says that you know the the only the only intention, you know, the, uh, the only intention on the part of the author in writing *The Lord of the Rings* was to write a really long story that would hold the attention that would hold the attention of readers, <coughs> you know, and would, uh, you know, and would, uh, you know, delight them and amuse them and and uh, and perhaps deeply move them. Um, and um, <coughs> this, the Book of Lost Tales. Sorry, I'm gonna have to do the cough drop thing. Again, I apologize for my voice. <clears throat> In the Book of Lost Tales, we see his first attempt <clears throat> to do that. His first attempt to write a long story and to put this all together. Uh, <clears throat> sorry. <clears throat> my voice just kind of suddenly gave out there. Let's see if I can get it back. All right. With that in mind, um, let's go to, let's jump back into the text. And we're going to pick up more or less where we stopped. Actually, well, first, let me, let me go back to some of your comments here. All right. Michael Chiskowski points to, you know, in his trying to delineate sort of those differences between the tone of the Book of Lost Tales, you know, especially between the Tale of, Tale of Tenuvio and the Silmarillion version. Um, he's thinking about playful versus serious as the two major uh, sort of terms that he uses there. And I, you know, it's it's not that there isn't, it's not that there aren't comical moments in the Silmarillion, but I think that's certainly a distinction that holds. I mean, I think there's more to it, and it's not that just that he is more playful and joking in the Book of Lost Tales. Um, but I agree, that's certainly, I, I, I certainly agree that, that that's an important element. Okay, good. Now, uh, Chuck Snow says, The question I've always, uh, always have between the tales and the Silmarillion is how much Christopher's editing has affected the stories in the Silmarillion. Well, 
That's like the whole reason Christopher Tolkien says in the prologue to the book of uh, the Book of Lost Tales, Part One, why he's doing the whole history of Middle Earth sequence in the first place. Is that basically, um, again, the, the story as he tells it. Uh, I'm not giving any inside scoop. I'm just saying what's in the what's in the prologue of, of Volume One. He says that apparently, when the Silmarillion came out there was a mixed response, and one of the primary elements of that response from readers was, okay, this is kind of cool, but how much of this is really Tolkien, and how much of this is Christopher? Is Christopher making up a lot of this stuff? You know, is, and, uh, and, you know, and if so, what? Um, and there were many people who kind of were making the assumption that it was kind of mostly Christopher. You know, so they're like, is this Tolkien, or is this, you know, close relation fan fiction that we're reading here? And so, Christopher Tolkien's response was eminently scholarly, right? His response is the 13-volume, you know, 12-volume history of Middle-earth, right? Um, I will, you know, you're wondering, here, I'll give you the entire history. So, Chuck, um, we can't, we can't draw firm conclusions on that, that is, on, on how much Christopher's involvement um, makes, you know, accounts for the difference by only looking at the Book of Lost Tales and the published Silmarillion because we're still skipping you know, ten volumes of the history of Middle-earth um, in which we can see the Silmarillion material growing from the Book of Lost Tales through to the published Silmarillion at the end um, and we have to really study all of that before we can really get the complete picture um, but nevertheless to say that the History of Middle-Earth series equips us more effectively to answer the question how much, you know, how weighty was Christopher Tolkien's influence is not the same thing as saying it proves that there isn't any, right? Um, uh, but, but, but anyway, I mean, I think, um, as I say, we still don't quite have enough data to be able to draw conclusions about that, at least from the, on the basis of our own discussions, um, <clears throat> to really draw conclusions about that yet. Um, Tom Hillman, as usual, um, has a, a very cogent comment on this. And I like your terminology, Tom. Uh, Tom says, The Book of Lost Tales has a far more fairy tale tone, while the Silmarillion has a mythic tone. It's more elevated, more cosmic. It is as if Tolkien simultaneously left behind the fairy tale tone <coughs> with words, like words like fae and fairies. <coughs> yes. The terms sound to me right. That is, Tom, I mean, that feels right. Fairy tale shifting to myth. But there's the one interesting thing there. Right, that is, he was explicitly doing myth in the Book of Lost Tales. Right, I mean, that is, that's how later on he characterized what the Book of Lost Tales was. And one of the differences that we can chiefly see is a greater sort of mythological element or a certain kind of mythological element. And I've talked about this before, and we ended class last time looking at one of the major examples 
of it. That is the dog and cat stuff with Tuvildo and Huan. Um, that is, there is a particular kind of mythological story which is intended, you know, which which appears intended, which which is um, calculated to explain particular phenomena, right? This is why this happens, right? This is why uh, thunder follows lightning. This is why, you know, the Nile floods every year. This is why, uh, you know, I mean, there are all kinds of, uh, <clears throat> there are all kinds of stories like that in different mythologies, both to explain, you know, like meteorological phenomena or, or phenomena like, like, why, why do dogs and cats behave like that, right? Why on earth do cats carry on like that at night? Um, <clears throat> so we have a, a story, right, that explains it. That's one particular subspecies of myth, right? Of mythology. And it is a kind of subspecies of myth which Tolkien's later works do very little of, but which the Book of Lost Tales is a great deal more interested in. Um, and we see that cropping up again and again. Um, we're going <clears> to <throat> come back to this much more when we look at his shift from the Ariel story to the Alfwina story at the end of the Book of Lost Tales, Part 2. That's going to be one of the major things that's kind of <clears throat> at stake, I guess, um, when we look at that, when we look at that shift later on. Um, so, so again, Tom, like, I, I want to say absolutely yes, I agree with that vocabulary, but there are myths and, and myths, you know, right? Um, so, I mean, and <clears throat> I'm reminded, of course, as well, <coughs> I'm reminded as well of the way in which um, Tolkien himself sort of depicted, uh, you know, uh, or, or discussed a kind of continuity, right, between fairy tale and, and, and mythology um, in on fairy stories, right, when he, you know, he sort of talked about how the two of them are related, and he talked about, like, you know, high fairy story and low fairy story. I mean, this, you know, he clearly saw this as a kind of spectrum. Um, so, I think your your dichotomy between fairy tale and myth, if we see it not as a binary, but as sort of two ends of a spectrum, I think that we can see a general, you know, movement in one direction on, on that spectrum between Book of Lost Tales and... Uh, um, and and the Silmarillion, and that would help to deal with this question of that other kind of mythology, right? Because the whole, you know, the argument then that could be made is that that kind of mythology is more towards the middle of that spectrum between, you know, sort of simple fairy tale on the one side and, you know, sacred high sacred story on the other side. Okay. Still trying <laughs> to recover my voice here. Um, okay, and, and I apologize for this. I am um, uh, <clears throat> whenever I get head colds like this, my voice uh, is always kind of at risk of giving out on me like this. We'll see what we can do. One thing I will be trying to do is speaking more quietly. So we'll see. Okay. Um, uh, 
Okay, good. Let's see. I'm just looking over a few more comments. That's interesting. Don Standing says, um, maybe it's not a shift from fairy tale to myth, but rather a movement out of Victorian fairy tale. <coughs> maybe. I mean, it's certainly, I mean, as, t- as Tom was just referring to, there's that correlation, right, between this shift, um, <coughs> this shift from fairy tale to myth. There's a correlation with the dropping of those traditional vocabulary terms, right, like fairy and fae. Um, we're not going to call them fairies anymore. We're going to call them elves. Um, and we're not going to call them fae anymore. We're just going to use the word valar. And notice we're not going to call them gods anymore, as he does in, in the Book of Lost Tales. Um, and so really doesn't call them gods. Um, so, okay. What? So, Don, coming back to your comment, in this sense, he is leaving the sort of the traditional vocabulary of Victorian fairy tales. Again, we're not going to be we're not going to be talking about fairies and goblins. We're going to talk about elves and orcs. Um, we're going to be talking about the Valar, <coughs> not the gods or the Fae. But I still don't think it's a question of abandoning Victorian fairy tale, because there is so much already that is mythic, even if mythic in that kind of middle ground sense <coughs> in the Book of Lost Tales already. So, again, I don't think it's a question of him just sort of abandoning that. And I know, <clears throat> Don, I'm sort of simplifying what you were saying, but, um, anyway, I, uh, um, but it definitely, it fits with the general thought, the general pattern that I'm seeing in the tale of Tenuvio is this tendency towards... <coughs> general a general fairy tale approach compared to the far what greater I mean greatness is the word I used in the title again not to imply the quality of the story or the again here I am using my ambiguous vocabulary uh, the excellence of the story but rather the size the scale of the story loftier Carita, that's a really good word. Um, the loftiness of the story. It's less about excellence and more about altitude <clears throat> in some kind of metaphorical sense. Yeah. More high, more big. Exactly, Carita. Alright. Let's endeavor to advance the slide, which is kind of not working. Oh, there it is. Look at that. Now it's working too much. All right. (coughs) (coughs) Yet wild and rugged and very lonely were those days, for never a face of elf or man did they see. This is right after they escaped to Vildo, of course. And Tenuvio grew at last to long sorely for Gwendolyn, her mother, 
and the songs of sweet magic she was used to sing to her children as twilight fell in the woodlands by their ancient halls. Often she half fancied she heard the flute of Dairon her brother, in pleasant glades wherein they sojourned, and her heart grew heavy. At length she said to Baron and to Huan, I must return home. And now is it Baron's heart that is overcast with sorrow, for he loved that life in the wood with the dogs, for by now many others had come to join Huan. Yet not if Tenuvio were not there. Nonetheless, said he, never may I go back with thee to the land of Artenor, nor come thee ever after to seek thee, nor, nor come there ever after to seek thee, sweet Tenuvio, save only bearing a Silmaril, nor may that ever now be achieved, for am I not a fugitive from the very halls of Melko, and in danger of the most evil pains to do any of his, do any of his servants spy me? Now this he said in the grief of his heart at parting with Tenuvio, and she was torn in mind, abiding not the thought of leaving Baron, nor yet of living ever thus in exile. So she sat a great while in sad thought, and she spoke not, but Baron sat nigh, and at length said, Tenuvio, one thing only can we do, go get a Silmaril. And she sought thereupon Huan, asking his aid and advice, but he was very grave, and saw nothing but folly in the matter. All right. Now, we have here, <laughs> Jordan points out, her father is noticeably absent in her longings for home. Yeah, she doesn't miss dad quite so much, does she? Um, yeah, exactly. Um, but this this is kind of a striking passage, right? Um, you know, one of the things that we see throughout the Silmarillion version of the story is Tenuvial's, well, I was about to say dogged, but that seems appropriate under the circumstances, determination to follow Baron and to stay with him no matter what, right? The way in which, I mean, it's very clear <clears throat> that Luthien has chosen to cleave to Baron through thick and thin, and no matter what. And that's a huge element, one of the foundational elements of the story of Baron and Luthien as it develops later. We have already seen that that, you know, high, lofty, transcendent love affair between the two of them is not a central element of this story. We looked at it in looking at the sort of comparatively slow progression of their love, right? <clears throat> the fact that we got only kind of light flirtation uh, with her <clears throat> sort of leading him on, you know, sort of teasing him and luring him into into the halls to confront her father. God, we're having all kinds of different problems today. All different genres of problems. <clears throat> Sorry, I just crashed there all of a sudden um, in quite unaccountable way. All right, let's see. Uh, what was the last thing you guys heard? Um, so we were talking about how we've already seen last time that this is not contextualized. The, 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 the main thrust of the story is not the greatest love story of all time, right? There is, that is the main theme, one of the themes, anyway, <clears throat> one of the, the main sort of premise of the Baron and Luthien story. That is not the case. We got to proposal of marriage, right. 
barren spontaneous proposal of marriage. But even then, it seems, I, I guess, spontaneous, more like a lark than anything. His whole appearance there, um, <clears throat> his his uh, whole appearance there uh, was, that is, in Artenor, was just kind of a lark, right? He's just wandering around, because that's what he did, right? And he was braver than most and liked to wander around. Anyway, remember the passage that we looked at last time, which was <clears throat> somewhat shocking, in that it suggests that Baron, when he was in prison, um, you know, in in thraldom to Devildo, <coughs> was um, <coughs> uh, was wishing he'd never met Tenuvio, and that seems like an appalling thing for Baron to say. Why is it appalling? What's appalling about that? Well, it's quite understandable under the circumstances. The only reason it's appalling is that it seems to fall very short of the standard that Baron and Luthien are supposed to maintain, right? Because of the expectations we have coming to it from the Silmarillion. Um, but really, it's a very natural feeling. I, what he had with Tenuvial wasn't that serious, <laughs> right? Um, and now, he's in a world of hurt. And the same thing um, the same reaction, exactly, Jan, it's only appalling in the context of the later version. Um, and the same thing is true here, right? Um, Tenuvial saying to Baron, it's been great, but I need to go home now, seems kind of appalling, but only um, in the context of what Luthien does and says in the later version, right? And because we bring to it that expectation. But again, what what do we have here? Not just like a second-rate love story compared to the first-rate love story we get in the Silmarillion. Rather, it's a different kind of love story. This is not a story of high destiny. It's not a story of, you know, sort of the great doom of two peoples, you know, whose, whose love for each other enabled them to go far beyond, you know, so many different limits, Right? That's not the story we've been reading. It's never been the story we've been reading here. This story, I want to say that it's a very human kind of love story, but in the circumstances, that's a terrible way to describe it. But perhaps you know what I mean by that? That is to say, Baron and Luthien, in the later version, are these, like, ineffable, lofty characters, so far above anyone reading these, right? And the the story of their love, the story of their relationship is something archetypal, right? It's not like, I've never met any two people who act like that, or any relationship that really functions that way. But that's not the point of it. Again, Tom, to go back to your word, it's mythic, right? This is closer to the ground, closer to our perspective. You can kind of imagine in a fairy tale context, explicitly in a fairy context, because both of them are elves, how this kind of a relationship might happen. Right? They do love each other. They have grown to love each other. And this, you know, kind of seems like, um, you know, there might be um, might be something serious here between Baron and Tenuvio, you know. This might really grow into something. But that's the kind of story that it has been. 
and this is a an interesting stage in that. I love Baron's like perfectly disingenuous and quite adorable. Tenuvio, one thing only can we do. Go get a Silmaril. Hey, let's go get a Silmaril. That'll solve all of our problems. Then we can stay together and you can go home. Wow, let's do that. Why not? Right? Again, none of this like, and a high doom was upon him or anything like that. <laughs> Why not is exactly what Curita just said. Yeah, I'm, I'm not doing anything else here. Um, Sarah makes a wonderful observation. Sarah King says, it's sort of like two children talking while they play. I have to go home now. Um, no, wait, we'll go get a Silmaril instead, right? Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I have to go home now. Um, yeah, Sarah, th there is something childlike in that. And, and, and that's explicitly, note. I mean, Sarah's right. That's explicitly the context in which we're invited to hear that, right? Um, she's thinking of her mother singing songs of sweet magic to her children as twilight fell in the woodlands by their ancient halls. Or she's thinking about her mom and the song that her mom used to sing to her children. I miss mom, right? And I miss my brother. And as Jordan points out, not dad so much. But whatever. Um, uh, yes, exactly. Alyssa, it is less incalculable and remote. Very good, to use Tolkien's words there. Um, yeah, yeah, good. Um, yeah. Interesting. Carita has a, a, a fabulous observation. She says, Tanuvio calls herself little when she is talking to Melko, and Baron calls her little later on. Um, yeah, she is kind of little, as Carita says. Um, there's something small and cute about Tanuvio. And extraordinarily admirable, as she is in so many ways. Luthien is not little and cute. Um, and again, I think that that, uh, that does help us to, 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 to make a little bit more concrete the difference in, in exactly what this kind of story, um, exactly what this kind of story is doing. Um, Now, let's, um, let's go on, because I find the whole scene with Melko one of the, one of the most interesting and kind of complex moments in this story, because it doesn't stay uniform. Um, I think that we can see elements, or, mm, I don't know what, forebodings? of the direction in which the story is going to grow. <clears throat> so much of this story reads in that little, lower-to-the-ground, smaller-scale, more childlike and fairy tale like tone of story. I think that that's true, but it's not all like that. And I think that it, it's, it shifts a little bit, and uh, let's 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 look at this. This is um. This is the trip to Angamandi. Right after Tunuvial's like, yeah, let's go get a Sumero. I agree. Um. Okay. Then did they bid farewell to Huan and set out for the halls of Melko by easy journeys, 
for Baron was in great discomfort and heat within the fur of Oikeroy, and Tenuvial's heart became lighter a while than it had been for long, and she stroked Baron or pulled his tail, and Baron was angry because he could not lash it in anger as fiercely as he wished. Now that's just cute. Right, um, I mean, they're they're, they're being. Uh, <laughs> by the way, for riddles in the dark listeners, um, I couldn't help but think uh, in reading <laughs> a really funny thought in 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 reading this passage again of all the uh, discussions we'd had about whether Peter Jackson was going to dress Galadriel in armor, and people were talking about like how awful it would be. Uh, for Galadriel to, like, show up at, at Dol Guldur in a cat suit. And I'm like, well, hey, look, Tolkien did include some one of his characters dressed up in a cat suit, but it, it was a little bit different. Um, anyway, so uh, <laughs> so here's Baron in his cat suit. And all the detail about how hot he is inside that thing and... Um, um, and, uh, and and how, like, you know, he wants to lash his tail, but he can't lash his tail because he doesn't have a real tail. It's just a fake tail. It's just a costume. Uh, <clears throat> it's just a skin. You know, again, on the one hand, the first part of this paragraph, the first part of this passage, is a perfect illustration of that much more playful, much more... Ch- I mean, these two characters could easily be, what, like eight, maybe? you know, six years old, I mean, I mean, like, they're, they're, it's, it's a very, that is a very, not just childlike, but a very childish kind of interaction, right? Um, then, then watch where we go. At length, however, they drew near to Angamandi, as indeed the rumblings and deep noises and the sound of mighty hammerings of ten thousand smiths laboring unceasingly declared to them. Nigh were the sad chambers where the thrall Noldoli labored bitterly under the orcs and goblins of the hills. And here the gloom and darkness was so great, was great, so that their hearts fell. But Tenuvio arrayed her once more in the dark garment of deep sleep. Now the gates of Angamandi were of iron wrought hideously, and set with knives and spikes, and before them lay the greatest wolf the world has ever seen, even Karkaras Knifefang, who had never slept, and Karkaras growled when he saw Tinuvio approach, but of the cat he took not much heed, for he thought little of cats, and they were ever passing in and out. The two halves of this paragraph are like a thousand miles apart, aren't they? I mean, the description of Angamandi, especially beginning as we do with this image of the sad chambers where the thrall Noldoli labored bitterly under the orcs and goblins of the hills. Um, you know, I mean, that's, um, that's the, uh, uh, that's, that's not a six-year-old or, you know, eight-year-old story, right? Um, you know the chambers where the where the elf slaves are being kept and forced to work. That's um kind of awful, right? As Arthur Harrow says, the childish kids are approaching the entry to nightmare. Absolutely, and what's I absolutely agree. Both Sharon Powell and Carita are pointing out the difference with Carcaris's description. Right, Carita points out that Carcaris is not given faint praise. Not that like he's braver than most, as is said of Baron, right? Um, but Karkaras Knifefang um, is not described in those kinds of terms, right? Not at all. 
and Sharon says is 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 right. Carcharis is mythic. This is a powerfully mythic description. The greatest wolf the world has ever seen, even Carcharis knife fang. Notice that technique there, where he says the greatest wolf, even Carcharis knife fang, as if we will have heard of him, right? Like, you know, Car- I'm, so, I'm you know, Carcharis himself. It's like, ooh, right? I mean, that really hits you, right? Like, even you're supposed to recognize it, even if you don't. Who had never slept? Love, that's my favorite part of that whole description, right? Even Carcharis knife fang, who had never slept. You know, so you've got this really intimidating, powerfully mythic, conceptual idea of this unsleeping guardian. This is a different world, right? It's a different world that they're entering into. Um, So our childlike fairy tale story is moving into very different places, right? Um, Now watch what happens when we get there. Um, Melko has just said to Tenuvio, you don't belong here. Nay, that I do not yet, said Tenuvio, though I may perchance hereafter of thy goodness, my lord Melko. Knowest thou not that I am Tenuvio, daughter of Tinwellin, the outlaw? and he hath driven me from his halls? For he is an overbearing elf, and I give not my love at his command. Now in truth was Melko amazed that the daughter of Tinwelland came thus of her free will to his dwelling, Angabandi the Terrible, and suspecting something untoward, he asked what was her desire. For knowest thou not, saith he, that there is no love here for thy father or his folk, nor needst thou hope for soft words and good cheer from me? So hath my father said, said she, but wherefore need I believe him? Behold, I have a skill of subtle dances, and I would dance now before you, my lord, for then, methinks, I might readily be granted some humble corner of your halls wherein to dwell, until such time as you should call forth the little dancer Tinuvio to lighten your cares. Nay, saith Melko, such things are little to my mind, but as thou hast come thus far to dance, dance, and after we will see. And with that he leered horribly, for his dark mind pondered some evil. Okay. Um, what do you make of this? The tone of Tenuviel's comments and the sort of uh, premise, I guess, of her comments um sure sounds simple enough right um the the sort of um context that the story is giving us to understand this is even <clears throat> the build up to one of the great moments right <coughs> tenuvio's spell upon melko himself which is a very great deed in this story as in the later version. So, this is a big deal, right? We're building up to that. But, this doesn't sound very epic confrontation-like, right? Um, Indeed, it seems to me to match the tone of Baron's uh, 
to match the tone of Baron's speech before Milko, right? When he's captured and he does his inspired lie, she lies too. <coughs> and we're told that she also is pardonable for that. We're not told she's explicitly inspired by the Valar, but she's, um, it's okay that she lies to him. We're told. But, what do we do with this? What are your thoughts about this passage? Again, I'm thinking, especially in the context of the previous one, as they're approaching Angamandi. And we have that, now it's a playful children, you know, childlike fairy tale. Now it's not. Now it's dark and mythic. (coughs) And pretty grand and sweeping. Again, the description and uh, you know, the stuff about Carcharis. But it doesn't keep going in that direction. It kind of pulls back some. And her, like, I don't know what she's trying to imply exactly at the beginning. For he is an overbearing elf, and I give not my love at his command. I give not my love at his command. If I were Melko, I would think that she was trying to suggest my dad wanted to make me marry against my will, but I refused. So I ran away from dad because he was trying to marry me off to somebody I didn't like. So I came here. Uh, why? Why is how I would summarize his response, <clears throat> right? Knowest thou not that there is no love here for thy father or his folk, nor needst thou hope for soft words and good cheer for me? Like, uh, I'm not your friend. Did you come here thinking you would get shelter or something? Like, find an ally? Um, uh, reassurance? There, there, little one. Right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, good. Chuck says she's feigning naivete. Yes. That or being naive, but I agree. I mean, she's obviously making up a story, so she's clearly feigning, and that is the posture that she's adopting with him. Um, she isn't actually thinking of moving in. You know, she's not actually coming to, to Angamandi like apartment hunting, as she seems to imply at some points in this in this discussion. But notice what that what that shows us, what that suggests to uh, to Nubio. Is now deliberately playing the role of the simple childlike person, right? She's like faking that this is a more simple fairy tale story than it really is, right? Um, oh, look! Look at little me, right? I'm the little dancer Tenuvio, and why don't you just keep me in a little closet? And whenever you want the little dancer Tenuvio, I will come out and entertain you. I don't know. See, here's the other element, of course. And it's the element that I know is not lost on any of you, as several of you um, have commented on it already. And uh, we might as well address it square on. How sexually creepy is this scene, in fact? That's the question, right? Okay. 
Um, Melkor's response, excuse me, Melko's response. Oh no, I'll stick with Melkor, because I was thinking of the Silmarillion. Melkor's response to Luthien in the Silmarillion. I always <coughs> believed, have always believed, that uh, he is experiencing sexual desire there, that the, 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 the uh, evil lust that he conceives in his mind um, is, uh, is sexual in nature, and that the thing that he's imagining is something really bad. Um, whether it's rape or marriage or both. <clears throat> Remember, there's precedent for that. Mythologically speaking, uh, Melkor taking Luthien, uh, him even kidnapping, raping, both in the <clears throat> uh, ancient and modern sense, that is, in the ancient sense of kidnapping, and in the modern sense, the modern, more sexual sense, or more strictly sexual sense, <clears throat> it's very like Hades and Persephone. Really. Um, you know, you've got the dark god of the underworld. Angamandi uh, uh, kind of is hell. Kind of. Sort of. It's a little unclear. Um, but anyway, okay. So we've got that mythological precedent for that kind of thing anyway. The, le the horrible... And by the way, sometimes people... <clears throat> are sort of wondering why I'm so diffident about that interpretation of the Silmarillion. Like, I think he's really experiencing, you know, sexual lust here. Because, you know, a lot of people are like, dude, it says lust. Like, you know, an evil lust. Um, but that's not actually proof. The word lust um, is an old word uh, in English. And the traditional uh, use of it that is, pre pre year you know prior to the year fifteen hundred, which is like when English is defined according to Tolkien. Like everything after fifteen hundred is like Johnny Come Lately in the English language according to Tolkien. The pre fifteen hundred definition of the word lust is simply desire. That's why he says an evil lust, as if you could have good lust, right? In the modern sense, in which the word lust merely means illicit sexual desire or inappropriate sexual desire, or sinful sexual desire. Um, in that sense, there's no such thing as good lust. So why does he even bother to call it evil lust? Um, no, it's a desire. Uh, the, the word lust was a very vague, gen sort of general word. You can have lust for anything. You have lust for your dinner. Um, more unsettling to modern readers, um, if you read <coughs> Middle English um, uh, medieval mysticism, you know, you read mystic texts, such as, for instance, uh, The Cloud of Unknowing, uh, my favorite medieval mystic uh, uh, handbook in Middle English. Um, they talk about the lust for God. Um, it just means desire. Um, so, the fact that he uses the word lust d doesn't, for me, by itself, prove the fact that Melkor is... Uh, that, w that he's thinking in sexual directions with Luthien. But I think he is. Anyway. Here... He's leering horribly, and his dark mind pondered some evil. Um, remember also that, and I think Christopher Tolkien talked about this in uh, 
part one. Um, in the, the Book of Tales part, the Book of Oz Tales part one, the gods not only have spouses; that is, the Valar not only have spouses; they have children. They actually procreate. Um, not only Melian, whom of course is of that order, and and the mom of Tenuviel. So we see that there can be um, uh, uh, procreative relationships between, you know, the Ainur and uh, uh, and the children of Iluvatar already. But <coughs> um, the Valar have children in this, in the Book of Lost Tales world. Um, so this seems uh, the more practical. That is to say, Melko conceiving some kind of plan that involves a sexual union between himself and Tenuvio uh, seems even seems more pragmatic in the Book of Lost Tales context than it does in the Silmarillion context. Um, we don't know what he's planning. We don't have any. Uh, um, uh, <laughs> I see. Uh, um, uh, Chuck objects to the, the the sexual line of thought here. If somebody wanted to make an argument that Melko uh, is not thinking in these directions at all, I, I'd, I'd listen to that argument. I mean, I think that there's definitely an argument to be made there. I'm not convinced um, at this point. Um, and let me clarify something. I don't mean that I think that Milko is like having a like spontaneous, you know, sexual or romantic attraction to Tunuvio. Um Again, I think that's why in Silmarillion Tolkien calls it an evil lust. Um, it's twisted even then. Uh, but anyway, okay. So here we have the horrible leering and his dark mind pondering some evil. But here's the tricky thing. She brought it up, okay? I mean, if I'm reading that first paragraph, and tell me if you think I'm not reading that first paragraph correctly, I give not my love at his command. She's raised the the issue. The marriage issue. It's implicitly and indirectly, admittedly, and as I said, maybe I'm wrong. But, I mean... Doesn't that first paragraph sounds like she sound like she's saying, "Daddy wanted me to marry somebody that I really didn't like, so I ran away and came to you instead." Really? Oh, and can I dance for you, by the way? Um, now, I'm not suggesting that she's going to do anything skanky in her dancing. I'm not going there. You know, it's it's not about that. I'm not saying that she's, you know, being a a sexually forward woman here. Um, I'm just saying, it's on the table, right? I mean, the issue has been raised um, by her. And again, notice the parallel between her and Baron, right? Baron comes before Milko, and he's like, uh, hey, uh, here I am, a prisoner, but actually, I was coming here to ask for a job anyway, because I think you're awesome, really, and uh, you're pretty much the best around, and I was really hoping I could, you know, find work with you, because that'd be great. I would really like to, you know, 
sort of have a relationship with you as uh, you know since you're since you're the greatest um, she seems to be taking a very similar line except not in employment so much but perhaps <clears throat> in marriage so hath my father said she says um, that is that you know there's no love for his folk here but wherefore, wherefore need I believe him behold I have a skill of subtle dances and I would dance now before you my lord Wait, wait, okay. So, my father, dad said that you didn't like us, right? But I don't believe him. I think maybe you do like us. Behold, I have a skill of subtle... I'm a really good... And, and behold, I'm a really good dancer. And I would dance now before you, my lord. For then, methinks, I might readily be granted... So, because then I think you'll let me stay here. If you, if you watch me dance, then I think we can be friends, Right? You say there's no love here for my father and his folk? I think that, you know, Dad said the same thing, but I think you might be wrong. I think there might be some love here for my, for my father's folk, if you know what I'm talking about. And if you let me dance for you first, then I think you'll agree, and you'll let me stay. You know, maybe there's it's like a little studio apartment that's going unused somewhere off in the corner of Agamandi that I get, and then, you know, I could, you, you could bring me out to dance before you at any time. Um... I, again, I'm not trying to suggest that Tanuvio is really actively being a coquette here before Melko. But it's kind of, I mean, we're in the ballpark, aren't we? I mean, am I crazy? I, I mean, I, I, this was really striking me this last time I read it more than it ever has before. And um, I keep trying to kind of back off from it, but at the same time, I'm like, dude, what else, do, what else does this mean? If that's not what she's saying, what is she saying? And why is she saying this stuff? Um, she does seem to be flirting with Milko here. But that doesn't seem outside the... That doesn't seem beyond the pale. Again, Baron does a similar kind of thing, right? You know, the flattery that he gives to... Both of them flatter Melko, and both of them try to make Melko believe that they think he's awesome, and that they really, really want to be with him. Um, uh, yeah, Nancy says that she thinks I'm right, but that Tolkien is super circumscript about making this, that stuff explicit. I agree, it's very circum, circumscript, uh, circumspect. Absolutely. Um... Yeah, yeah. Um, such things are little to my mind. Nay, such things are little to my mind, he says. I'm not into that, right? Uh, but as thou hast come thus far to dance, dance, and after we will see. And then he leer, does his leering and pondering of evil thing. Um... Sarah King says, Moko is kind of surprisingly polite, too. Saying that dances are little to his mind is kind of hilarious for the supreme power of evil. Yes. That is another thing to notice here. Notice how much uh, less mythically evil Melko is than the than his house. Right? I mean, the, the introduction and description of Karkaras was far more grand and weighty 
um, you know, and sort of mythic in that more extreme end of the spectrum sense uh, than the description of Melko himself, right? And certainly than the words of Melko himself. He doesn't sound very scary, really. I mean, even that first speech, knowest thou not that there is no love here for thy father or his folk? I mean, it's pretty gentle, right? Nor needest thou hope for soft words and good cheer from me? I mean, serious, does Morgoth Bowglier from the Silmarillion ever talk to anybody like that? Right? Um, I mean, at least, you know, like when he's sitting there with his iron crown on. (laughs) Carita says he's more polite than her dad. Yeah, true. True. Um, Yeah. Now, Suzanne uh, Lander wants to uh, sort of specifying, uh, or wants to sort of clarify that she thinks that Tenuvio is flirting as a fl- as a form of flattery, as opposed to an open proposition. That seems right to me. I mean, again, I, I don't think... I mean, again, going back to Nancy's point about the circumspection with which Tolkien is talking about this, I think that's not merely a question of Tolkien being um, sort of shy about it, right? Like, you know, wanting to be like, I'm kind of talking about sex here, but I'm gonna, like make it sound like I'm not. I mean, it's not even being... uh, uh, It's not even about that. It's within the story itself, right? Luthien doesn't want to say anything that's going to commit her, right? It's not just Tolkien that's being circumspect. It is Tenuvio. Did I call her Luthien? Dang it. It is Tenuvio who is being circumspect as well, right? She doesn't say anything that could commit her. She's not making any promises. She's not making any declarations, She's only making implications, or allowing him to make impl- you know, allowing him to draw conclusions from her words. And so, Suzanne, I'm, I'm I'm bringing all these things up as what seems to be, what seems to me, to be uh, 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 in support of your argument there, um, that ultimately the flirtation that she's doing, the kind of pleasant idea that oh, so the famous Tenuvio, because she is famous. Um, ran away from her father, King Tinwillant, uh, and came to me willingly, and he's shocked to see her there, right? Came to me willingly because she likes me, right? Uh, because maybe she wants me to marry her. Um, that's a little flattering, right? But no positive proposals have been made. Um, Arthur Harrow is thinking of Bilbo and Smaug here. Uh, Arthur says, evil is by its nature egotistical. And perhaps this is the earliest version uh, uh, you know, of that, of that kind of conversation. Um, of, you know, with the sort of outrageous flirtation, or not flirtation, uh, flattery. Uh, uh, <laughs> Bilbo doesn't go quite so far as flirtation uh, with Smaug. Uh, the outrageous flattery uh, that Bilbo delivers to Smaug. Um, <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, excellent. Um, yeah, cool. Okay, um, let's um, let's keep going. Let's look at her dance. Time to start the dancing. Then did Tenuvio begin such a dance as neither she nor any other sprite or fay or elf danced ever before or has done since. Superlatives unqualified superlatives. In fact, underscored superlatives. Notice that? We'll come back to that. And after a while, even Melko's gaze was held in wonder. 
Round the hall she fared, swift as a swallow, noiseless as a bat, magically beautiful as only Tenuvio ever was, and now she was at Melko's side, now before him, now behind, and her misty draperies touched his face and waved before his eyes, and the folk that sat about the walls or stood in that place were whelmed one by one in sleep, falling down into deep dreams of all that their ill hearts desired. Beneath his chair the adders lay like stones, and the wolves before his feet yawned and slumbered, and Melko gazed on enchanted, but he did not sleep. Then began Tenuviel to dance a yet swifter dance before his eyes. And even as Gwendolyn had taught her long ago, a song that the youths and maidens sang beneath the cypresses of the gardens of Lorien, when the tree of gold had waned, and Silpion was gleaming. The voices of nightingales were in it, and many subtle odors seemed to fill the air of that noisome place as she trod the floor lightly as a feather in the wind. Nor has any voice or sight of such beauty ever again been seen there, and I knew Melko, for all his power and majesty, succumbed to the magic of that elf-maid, and indeed even the eyelids of Lorien had grown heavy had he been there to see. Then did Melko fall forward drowsed, and sank at last in utter sleep, down from his chair upon the floor, and his iron crown rolled away. All right. First, our superlatives, right? I point those out, of course, because you'll recall, um, and uh, a couple of you were referring earlier to the sort of faint praise that was given to them. Um, it, at, at, at the beginning of the story. We're not there anymore, right? It's not like... Yeah, she was like one of the three most... You know, it's, it's not like that. Um, uh, Kurita uh, particularly likes magically beautiful as only Tenuvio ever was. Yeah. And Kurita, that's an important one. Because that seems to be... It's not only that we're now getting a superlative in the story that we didn't get before, but it's like <clears throat> the lack of superlatives from before is being corrected, right? As only Tenuvio ever was. That wasn't said of her at the beginning of the story, right? It seems to be one of the... I would hold that up as a piece of evidence that the story is already growing in the telling, right? Um moving down that spectrum from fairy tale towards myth, um, becoming higher and loftier. Um, Tom asks, is, is this the birth of Luthien? Something close to that. She's certainly closer to Luthien here, I think, than we've seen her pretty much in the entire rest of the story. Um, good, yet yeah, uh, Thomas says the tone in this passage re uh, regains its mythic quality. I agree there's a shift back from the conversation. The conversation is not very mythic at all. Um, and again, the, the thing that I would emphasize, one thing that we've seen, that I've mentioned before, which I think is a pretty common trope in fairy tales of the simpler kind, is clever heroes, right? Um, coming up with a clever thing to say in order to fool somebody at a crucial moment. That's a pretty common fairy tale element, right? Um, that's 
with the direction that Tanuvio is going in her conversation. <clears throat> I'm going to make him think I'm flirting with him. I'm going to make him think maybe I'm interested in marrying him so that he'll let me dance before him, you know, as my little, like, audition, right? And that's when I'll get him. That, that's a very fairy tale kind of trope, right? But, but I agree with you, uh, Thomas, that we're, we shift out of that mode here um, and are in a much more mythic mode in this description. Um, interesting. Uh, Chuck is thinking about this. You know, she, <coughs> Chuck Snow says, has she created a singular event like Feanor's Silmarils never to be, uh, you know, created again? Um, well, of course, by its nature, it isn't exactly like that. But it is, I mean, it's a, it's a performance not to be equaled, right? I mean, th that business about even Lorien himself would have been not taken in by it, but affected by it. A couple of you are, point, are, th are, are pointing to the, the reference to the bat. Christopher Tolkien mentions that as like, is it possible that this is where the idea of the, you know, Thorin Gwethel, <coughs> the vampire bat, came from? Maybe. You know, don't know. <coughs> don't know the one, for, uh, don't know that for sure. But it is certainly, at the very least, it's kind of uh, a, a, an interesting, sort of amusing coincidence, if it is a coincidence. Um, ah, Carita says, so why didn't Baron and Tanuvia just grab the crown and run? We'll see the answer to that in just a second. <coughs> um, actually, let's go ahead and look at that. Suddenly, Tanuvia ceased. In the hall, no sound was heard, save of slumbrous breath. <coughs> Even Baron slept beneath the very seat of Melko. But Tanuvial shook him so that he awoke at last. <coughs> then in fear and trembling, he tore asunder his disguise, and freeing himself from it, leapt to his feet. Now does he draw that knife from, that he had from Tevildo's kitchens, and he seizes the mighty iron crown. But Tanuvial could not move it, and scarcely might the thews of Baron avail to turn it. Great is the frenzy of their fear, as in that dark hall of sleeping evil, <coughs> Baron labors as noiselessly as may be to prize out a Sumero with his knife. Now does he loosen the great central jewel, and the sweat pours from his brow. But even as he forces it from the crown, lo, his knife snaps with a loud crack. So, answer, way too big to run away with, right? It's huge. But that itself... Again, in my mind, now here all of a sudden, we're back again in the fairy tale world. Think of the images here. The huge crown, right, so big that as it's rolled off the giant head of Melko, that they can't pick it up and Baron can barely turn it, right, to access the Silmarils. Then he pulls out his knife, which has no name. It's just a kitchen knife, right? It's the knife that he took from Tevildo's kitchen. Um, and the the kind of I don't know humility of that not humility in the sense of like the virtue of humility but the like I am the hero of humble background who with my trusty kitchen knife will prize out the Silmaril from the Iron Crown of Melko 
feels very very Jack and the Beanstalk, doesn't it? In fact, this whole scene reminds me of Jack and the Beanstalk, like that whole sense of like, you know, we are children who have sneaked into the hall of a sleeping giant, right? And we're hoping he won't wake while we try to like wrest this gem from the from his crown with 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 my kitchen knife. Um uh, this is um uh we're we're again back in that simpler childlike fairy tale kind of story here. I think again, this is where again you know the the point as I said, what I find so fascinating about the whole Melko's throne room section is the way that it goes back and forth. It feels like the story is is kind of sort of losing its identity or its initial identity anyway, or rather freely mingled in. It doesn't ever, it doesn't permanently lose it. Again, we're still there. This passage here, um, this sounds like a very natural, feels like a very natural culmination to the, let's go get a Silmaril, right? Won't that be fun? And the pulling his cat's tail and stuff as we get there. And it ends with him, like, breaking his kitchen knife, trying to pull the Silmaril off this huge crown, while they're like, shh, don't wake the giant. Um, and Nancy's pointing to the sweat pouring from his brow. Yeah, he's braver than most, but you know. Um, anyway, uh, it's, um, we're still in that world, but we're not permanently in there. We keep, we keep, you know, he keeps sort of modulating out of it, right? Pulling us out of that particular kind of mode and inviting us. Um, you know, to, to, to begin to see these moments, especially that the moment of Tenubial's dancing, especially the initial description of Angamandi and Karkaras in this much more exalted and mythic light. Um, and again, I think this is just kind of different impulses within Tolkien. The story seems to have its, its, uh, its frame is within that fairy tale mode. That's what we've seen from the beginning, but it doesn't stay perfectly true to that all the way through. Um, the uh, sort of first tastes <coughs> of the mythic quality that it will come to have um, keep uh, keep popping out of it. Now, look at uh, popping out in it. I mean to say, let's look at the. Uh, uh, this is sort of the. The scene, which is kind of the bookend, the very first one we looked at, the I want to go home passage. This is after they've escaped, and Baron's lost his hand. And by the way, notice that you know he doesn't present the Silmarillion dramatic, the, the Silmaril dramatically in his hand. He's just like trying to punch the wolf in the head, you know, and it grabs him and bites his hand off, and he's like, "Oh shoot! Not only did he eat my hand, that was the hand that had the Silmaril in it." For crying out loud. Um. Okay. At last, came there nevertheless a day, whereon waking out of a deep slumber, Baron started up as one who leaves a dream of happy things, coming suddenly to his mind. And he said, Farewell, O Juan, most trusty comrade, and thou, little Tenuvio, whom I love, fare thee well. This only I beg of thee. Get thee now straight to the safety of thy home, and may good Juan lead thee. And uh, But I, lo, I must away into the solitude of the woods, for I have lost that Silmaril which I had, 
and never dare I draw near to Angamandi more, wherefore neither will I enter the halls of Tinwellant. Then he wept to himself, but Tenuvial, who was nigh and had hearkened to his musing, came beside him and said, Nay, now is my heart changed, and if thou dwellest in the woods, O Baron, o Baron Ermabwed, then so will I. And if thou wilt wander in the wild places, there will I wander also, or with thee, or after thee. Yet never shall my father see me again, save only if thou takest me to him. Then indeed was Baron glad at her sweet words, and fain would he have dwelt with her as a huntsman of the wild. But his heart smote him for all that she had suffered for him, and for her, her he put away his pride. Indeed she reasoned with him, saying it would be folly to be stubborn, and that her father would greet them with naught but joy, being glad to see his daughter alive. And maybe, said she, he will have shame that his jesting has given thy fair hand to the jaws of Carcharus. On the one hand, we don't have any more of that, uh, it's been nice, Baron, but I want to go home thing, right? We're past that. And, um, you know, the love story has progressed beyond that, right? Um, this is the one passage in which we seem to get, you know, if there are those other moments we've been discussing where we get kind of a foretaste <clears throat> of the epic stature that these characters in this story is gonna have eventually down the road, this is the place where we get a foretaste of their relationship being equally lofty, right? But it's still just a foretaste. Um, <laughs> Chuck is asking me if I say, on on one hand, is that a joke or a pun? Uh, no, I, I uh, that was an accident. Perhaps a fortuitous one. Um, yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> but notice, it's not uh, a pure kind of modulation, right? <coughs> Like in that description of Angamandi, and that uh, you know the description of Carcharus, there isn't really. It doesn't go back to the child. You know, once it shifts from the childlike pulling of tails and uh, and 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 that kind of thing. Um, once we shift from that to you know the uh, chambers where the thrall noble are kept and even Carcharus knife fang. You know, it it stays there, right? It does, but this doesn't stay there. Maybe he will have shame that his jesting has given thy fair hand to the jaws of Carcharus. Jesting? Oh, yeah. He, he did kind of toss that out there, didn't he? He said it in scorn as a joke. Right? Again, in the Silmarillion, Thingol's you know, stipulation that Baron should get a Silmarillion is characterized by Melian as cunning counsel, right? A way that he can contrive to save his oath that he would not harm Baron, and yet send Baron to his death. Um, so he has devised cunning counsel. It's not cunning counsel in the tale of Tenuvio. Tenuvio calls it, on several occasions, a jest, a joke, right? That he was laughing at Baron 
and just kind of said this to make fun of him. And, uh, um, and she continues on that line here. Um, Maybe he will have shame, seeing that his jesting has given thy fair hand to the jaws of Carcharis. Well, if you really think he was just joking, you know, gosh, maybe instead of, maybe the answer to, hey, let's go get a Silmarill, should have been, uh, no, why don't we just go talk to Dad again? You know, maybe he'll be over that whole joking thing. Um, maybe we can talk Dad into taking this seriously, for crying out loud. Um, but, uh, so anyway, I, I I find that that sort of tone at the end a little bit well, not really in keeping with the tone that the two two of them both achieve. Um, Lo, I must away into the solitude of the woods, for I have lost that silmaril which I had, and never dare I draw near to Angamandi more, and therefore never neither will I enter the halls of Tinwillant. Um, you know, if thou dwellest in the woods, O barren Aramabwed, then so will I, and if thou wilt wander in the wild places, there will I wander also, or with thee, or after thee. Yet never shall my father see me again, save only if thou takest me to him. I mean, that's good stuff. And maybe, he'll have shame that his jesting has given, has given thy fair hand to the jaws of Carcharis. It's just a different register. It's uneven. And again, I don't mean that as a criticism of saying, like, ah, see, take this back to, you know, do some more revising here, Tolkien. That's not my point. It's that I think that we can see both of these elements kind of coming together. And what um, what I see happening is this is that fairy tale story. And we see, again, it's it still retains that whole fairy tale flavor, but it has these moments that it lifts upwards from that. And that's going to be the trajectory of this story. And not just of this story, but in a sense, really, of all of the the whole Lost Tales uh, content. Well, I want to shift now to looking at the ending. <coughs> um, and we're going to look at these sort of more briefly. Um, but this really, to me, is comes back to the, the, you know, the big question. What's this story about in the end? What is what kind of story is this? That we're in, not just the sort of the genre and the tone, we've been talking about that. But what's the purpose? Like what are you telling when you're telling this story? Uh, uh, for context, remember the introduction that we get here uh, in the beginning of the Silmarillion version of the story? And it's one of the only stories that gets an introduction like this. Normally, the Silmarillion just segues straight into the story. We get this really unusual sort of narrative pause at the beginning of the of the Baron and Luthien story. Among the tales of sorrow and of ruin that come down to us from the darkness of those days, there are yet some in which, amid weeping, there is joy, and under the shadow of death, light that endures. And of these histories, most fair still in the ears of the elves, is the tale of Baron and Luthien. Yeah, Nick, exactly. It's a story of hope, right? Among the tales of... So, there's a whole bunch of tales of sorrow and ruin that come back down to us from the darkness of those days, right? Like, they're all pretty sad, and they're all pretty ruinous, but, so, uh, but uh, with some of them, 
Amidst the weeping and the de- and the shadow of death, there's joy and light that endures. Right? And the most fair in the ears of the elves of all of these is the story of Baron and Luthien. So, okay, so it's... The shadow of death is there, right? Um, uh, uh, there's, there's weeping, but there's joy in the weeping. There's light under the shadow of death. Um, so ultimately, the story of Baron and Luthien is the story of hope. We see this in action, right? In the Fellowship of the Ring. Remember, this is what, you know, I, I think this is such an important moment. Such an important moment because so revelatory of Tolkien's concept of the Baron and Luthien story. Remember, in the dell under Weathertop, with the, with the Black Riders closing in and fear threatening to grip the hearts of the hobbits, Strider says, uh, you know, first they, they, the, the hobbits uh, are asking for a story. And uh, Sam sings the song of, uh, you know, the song about Gilgalad, and uh, Frodo's going to tell the story of Gilgalad. At first, this seems like a good idea, right? Because it's a story of the defiance of the darkness. Like, hey, let's remember when the Dark Lord was overthrown. That 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 seems like that might cheer us up a bit under the circumstances, right? Remember, Aragorn steps in and is like, no, 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 we shouldn't talk about that. Instead, I will tell you the story of Baron and Luthien. And he tells it first in verse and then in prose, right? So we see this is exactly how Aragorn himself is applying this story. Um, and I think it's such an important thing. Um, I was really delighted when I saw the extended edition of The Fellowship of the Ring and saw that Peter Jackson had, in fact, included a bit of Aragorn, like, singing about... But the context gets enti- it gets entirely stripped of this context, right? It's just sort of like a song that Aragorn is singing to himself really because he's thinking about Arwen, right? Um, though I love, in, in Peter Jackson, Peter Jackson's Aragorn gives the most uh, the, the most concise synopsis of the Luthien story uh, ever, right? The two-word one, she died. <laughs> All right, fair enough. Okay, got it. Um, anyway, um, and yeah, Nick, as you say, the, the, uh, the, the, Black Riders don't even, they don't attack until the story is finished. It is almost as if they're waiting for the story of Baron and Luthien to be done before they attack. Not that they're over, they're listening and enjoying it, but because as if it repels them uh, in some way. Um, kind of makes one wonder, like, hey, Aragorn, why did you tell the long version, actually? Uh, but, but, but anyhow, um, I, uh, um, I think it's, I, I, I think it's, it's really, it's, it's a fascinating moment, but again, particularly fascinating because it, it it illustrates the kind of application that the Baron and Luthien story has within Tolkien's world, right? Uh, by that time, in his conception, again, it's about hope. You know, Estelle, which seems appropriate. Now. The question is, what's the tale of Tenuyo about? What is the effect? What is the what is the you know, what's the end result of the tale of Tenuvio? Is can the same thing be said of the tale of Tenuvio? So let's look at the endings, and I want to do this. I said we can do it briefly, and we are, but I want to do this in full. That is, we're going to look at the whole end of the tale here, uh, bit by bit, or rather, sort of version by version. 
because it's kind of interesting the way it unfolds. Okay, so Viana, you, you may remember, is the girl who is telling this story from the beginning. So this is her ending of the story. Now then, they covered the leafy boughs whereon he lay with soft raiment, and they bore him away to the halls of the king, and there was Tenuvio awaiting him in great distress, and she fell upon Baron's breast and wept and kissed him, and he awoke and knew her. And after Mablung gave him that Silmaril, and he lifted it above him, gazing at its beauty, ere he said slowly and with pain, Behold, O king, I give thee the wondrous jewel thou didst desire, and it is but a little thing found by the wayside. For once, methinks, thou hadst one beyond thought more beautiful, and she is now mine. Yet even as he spake, the shadows of Mandos lay upon his face, and his spirit fled in that hour to the margin of the world, and Tenuviel's tender kisses called him not back. Then did Viane suddenly cease speaking, and Ariel sadly said, A tale of Ruth for so sweet a maid to tell. But behold, Viana wept, and not for a while did she say, Nay, that is not all the tale, but here endeth all that I rightly know. Okay. Um, that's a sad ending. Really sad, right? I mean, seriously, his last words are, And she is now mine. And then he dies? Like, seriously? That's awful. That's just terrible. Um, and, uh, and so, so she dies, and everybody lives sadly ever after. Um, now, Viana says that's not all the tale. There's more to it than that, right? Um, so she's not really saying that that's it. But it's all that she rightly knows. That is, it's all that she has by heart, as we'll see her clarify later on. Um, but it is fascinating that the very first, you know, the first stopping point that we get for this is of a very sad... It's a little surprising, isn't it? This story at no point really sounded like it was building up to tragedy. I mean, the... Oh, thinking of Baron and Luthien's light-hearted, playful story and flirtation and everything, uh, and... Uh, and all of their different adventures, and it all comes down in the end to he dies having just said she is now mine before they could ever marry her. I mean, wow. That's really bad. And Nancy says, uh, I like the implication that this was so sad she couldn't bear to continue memorizing. I agree, Nancy. I mean, she says, that's not all the tale, but here endeth all that I rightly know. It does lead you to sort of suspect, since she's weeping, it does lead you to like, I can't go on. Right, so the fact that that's not all the tale at first gives the impression it gets even worse or something, right? Like it's so sad, I can't even. I uh, no, I can't. Like I, I'm out. I'm done. Like that's it. That's all I can bear to memorize. Um. Uh, then what happens? Okay. Then Alsir pipes in. Other, and other children there spake, and one said, Lo, I have heard that the magic of Tenuvial's tender kisses healed Baron, and recalled his spirit from the gates of Mandos, and long time he dwelt among the lost elves, wandering in the glades of love with sweet Tenuvio. Well, that's more cheerful, right? I mean, I'm gonna tell ya, that's... Gosh, that sounds... It, like, let's do that, right? 
all we need to add is, and they lived happily ever after, right? I mean, that's that's a happily ever after ending, if ever I heard one, right? I mean, it kind of pivots right on the edge of tragedy. It looks like he's about to die, or he does, you know, like, get mostly dead or something. But then she kisses him, and he wakes up again and is healed, and hooray! I mean, there we have a fairy tale ending of our fairy tale story. That sounds much more like the kind of ending we've been building up to all along, right? So on the one hand, it's a it's a less striking, less moving ending uh, than uh, than Viana's actual than the place where Viana stopped and what she seemed to be implying through her tears about the rest of the story. Um, but it's so it's more satisfying in its in 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 the in the sense right um but that's but there's more right but another said nay that was not so o ausir and if thou wilt listen i will tell the true and wondrous tale for baron died there in tenuviel's arms even as viana has said oh so our hopes of happily ever after are crushed and Tenuviel, crushed with sorrow, and finding no comfort or light in all the world, followed him swiftly down those dark ways that all must tread alone. Oh, so this is the sad part that Viana didn't learn by heart, right? Not only does Baron die, then Tenuviel dies too. We're going to soften that by speaking poetically of those dark ways that all must tread alone, but okay, so he dies, and then she dies of sorrow. Yeah, it's worse, all right. Okay, anyway, but carry on. Now her beauty and tender loveliness touched even the cold heart of Mundos, so that he suffered her to lead Baron forth once more into the world. Nor has this ever been done since to man or elf, and many songs and stories are there of the prayer of Tenuviel before the throne of Mendos that I remember not right well. Yet said Mendos to those twain, Lo, O elves, it is not to any life of perfect joy that I dismiss you, for such may no longer be found in all the world where sits Melko of the evil heart. And know that ye will become mortal, even as men. And when ye fare hither again, it will be forever, unless the gods summon you indeed to Valinor. Nonetheless, those twain departed hand in hand, and they fared together through the northern woods, and oftentimes they were seen dancing magic dances down the hills, and their name can be heard far and wide. Look, he learned how to dance, right? She taught him. She said she was going to teach him how to dance. Looks like they got around to that. Isn't that nice? So, we have the simple sad ending. He died, tragically. And she died, too. Okay. Then we have the simple happy ending. No, he got better, and they lived happily ever after. And now we have the middle ground. Neither. Both. Sad and happy endings um, ambiguous Yana I agree with that um, the change of status is really fascinating here notice that it's uh, well it's not a punishment right I mean it's not like they're being doomed to be mortal like men but because they did something wrong or something like that right you know so it's not like that exactly but it's um, his emphasis. 
Lo, O elves, it is not to any life of perfect joy that I dismiss you. It's like what he's... It's almost like what Mandos is saying here is, alright, I'm going to let you guys live again and go back to the world, but don't think I'm saying and they lived happily ever after, right? There will be no living happily ever after here. You're going to kind of live happily for a while, but you are going to live happily but not forever after, right? So I'm going to give you half of the fairy tale ending, but I'm going to deny you the other half. I'll give, I'll give you the happily, but I'm going to deny you the ever after, okay? All right, that's what I'm going to do. I'm relenting, but I'm not going to just reverse things. I'm just going to make sad things come untrue. I'm going to send you back, but I'm going to strip you of your immortality, both of you. And you're going to be like mortal people. And when you fare hither again, it will be forever unless the gods summon you indeed to Valinor. Now, in the commentary, uh, you will have noticed that Christopher Tolkien gets really uh, cherry at this point. In you know, he says that the um, the what did he say? Eschatology of it. That is the. What Tolkien says about the ultimate destiny, the ultimate destiny of souls of elves and men at this time, is was really in flux, and, and it's pretty unclear. Um, so it's really hard to draw firm conclusions about what exactly all this stuff means. But based on other references, um, Christopher Tolkien is a little less full in his description of this than he is in some places about other things. Um, but basically, the elves when they die, their spirits go to Mandos, but then they're released, and they get reincarnated in this in the bodies of their descendants. Um, that was the sort of the original idea, which is still in play at this time. He's not... Tolkien doesn't seem to have changed his mind about that. Um, so... And it leads... I mean, as a joke that I've made so many times before, um, you know, that like it leads to the bizarre situation where, you know, like the elvish couple has a baby, and they come out, and they're like, hey, it's Grandpa, right? That's how it works, is the spirit of your departed relative comes back in your children. You know, it comes back through their family line. Not like, ah, oh, the spirit of Grandpa is strong in this one, but like, it's literally Grandpa, who was just born again. Uh, 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 through, And that's, like, uh, I mean... Thinking about it in practical terms to me is all kinds of weird, but that's that's... So they can escape and they can come, and they're still immortal, right? I mean, it's just, you know, sort of the cycle The cycle continues. Um, they're not going to have any of that. That's what he means when they're going to have to stay here. But some men are enabled. Some men are kind of caged up in Mandos or something, again, really unclear. Don't really know for sure. Um, but they, uh, but some of them get, like, make, you know, they get, like, outings uh, to Valinor, apparently. Um... And that's what he says. He says uh, that's what he means. Apparently, when he says, "Unless the gods summon you, indeed, to Valinor, maybe you'll get to go to Valinor, but you know you stand no more chance, no more chance of that than uh, you know the other mortal men will will do." Um, the transformation of their destiny seems to be a way of moderating. I mean, I was joking about the half of the happily ever after thing, but that's what it really seems to me to be. It's like of moderating their bliss, right? I'm not just going to undo it. 
there is, I'm going to give you a happy ending, but there shall remain an element of sadness, an element of tragedy. Um, the happiness of your ending is going to be qualified. It's going to be moderated um, by this grief. Again, this is a place where Baron's race is enormous, right? I mean, the, and this is where I started talking about, uh, you know, talking about this tale, and you know, is where I want to finish ending, uh, you know, talking about this tale. Um, this is to me the primary reason why the race of Baron has a bigger impact than any other element of this entire story, because just the difference there is so huge. The difference between I will let you return, but it will be at the, like, but Luthien there's a cost. Right. Um, I will grant you what you ask, but you have to be willing. I will only do it on condition that you become mortal. Um, that you, you know, so if you are going to join yourself to Baron, you have to leave behind your kindred. I mean, the, the sacrifice that's involved for Luthien is enormous. There's no sacrifice being made here. It's not about, again, it's not like the final and ultimate sort of tribute to their love for each other and her commitment to him. It, uh, um, it's merely sort of a consequence that's doled out to both of them together. Um, it cha it changes the story so much. Again, I don't think there's any element that um, there's there is no more radical difference. Um, there is no more transformative element of this story than the changing of Baron from elf to man. For this way, now Viana gets the last word again, and thereat that boy ceased, and Viana said, "Aye," and they did more than dance, for their deeds afterward were very great. And many tales are there thereof, that thou must hear, O Ariel Melanon, upon another time of tale-telling. For those twain it is, that story's name E. Kualwartham, which is to say, the dead that live again. And they became mighty fairies in the lands about the north of Syria. Oh, interesting. So the more that she knew, but doesn't know by heart, uh... We're not just sad, right? She knows of the greatness of their deeds afterwards, but she never learned those, or at least she does. You know, she says, you know, you you must learn it in other story. But I, I, I don't. She said she. This is all she knows, rightly, right? When she stopped before, why didn't she learn these other bits? I don't know. Um, it's very, it's very intriguing. A couple of you are suggesting: is this Tolkien? himself trying out multiple endings. I mean, in a sense, yes, of course, that is what he's doing. I don't think that means, does this mean he's being, like, actively indecisive? Like, he writes the, you know, the ending, like, you know, like, okay, and then they all die at the end. Eh, eh, I don't really like that. Cross out the end and just say, somebody else says, no, wait, actually, they don't die. Happily ever after. Eh, I don't like that either. I'll do a different one. Um, I don't think it's that spontaneous. I mean, again, it's one of the things that make the Lost Tales, to me, really fascinating. Um, because they have that extra layer that the Silmarillion just doesn't have. That is, it has the frame. Um, and um, this kind of disagreement 
and discussion among the frame characters as to what is the true right version of the story um, adds this really cool extra layer to the to the stories. So the disagreement among them about the endings, um, I am very reluctant to see that as like a spontaneous act of of uh, you know sort of revision on Tolkien's part or rethinking on Tolkien's part. Um, but uh, um, but it's a uh, but rather it, it, it's a part of the whole frame is this is going to be this uh, uh, this divide and the way that he sets that up seems perfectly sensible like sad for, you know one hears that it's that the tales and end, ended sadly the other hears that they, it simply ended happily um, and the third version which seems to be seems to have more authority than either of the other two um, especially when Veana comes back and essentially uh, endorses it here at the end. The original tower endorses this one, making it pretty much the official ending of the story. Um, but um, but still, it... Uh, um, it enables Tolkien sort of working this out among, you know, in in the frame to give it invites us to think about it on an entirely different level, right? We have the progress of our understanding of the understanding of these tale tellers and of Ariel who's receiving these tales and who will in turn himself be transmitting these tales uh, back to the world of of, of men. That is, this is how we're getting them. Um, And so one of the sort of dramas, you know, one of the, the sort of subplot of the frame narrative is Ariel sort of seeking and discovering these, you know, the true versions of these stories. Um, so anyway, I, I think it has a lot more to do with that kind of stuff um, uh, than, than the other. But anyhow, where we end up at the end, or rather I should say where Baron and Luthien end up at the end, um, becoming mighty fairies in the land, um, that's, um, uh, not where it seemed like we were headed. Again, that second ending, the happily ever after ending, that's the one that seems to fit best, um, with the rest of the story. I mean, if you kind of, uh, you know, take the whole story and then you, like, put these three endings sort of side by side and say, which one, which one fits best? You know, like the like little flashcards, like which one of these tails fits best onto this, you know, onto this animal, right? Uh, uh, my youngest son always really loved that kind of book where you would like mix and match pictures and and uh, you know do really funny pictures of a you know scorpion tail on a on a lion or something like that. Um, you know that kind of fantastical thing uh, has always amused my youngest son very much. It's not that this is a fantastical hybrid creature like that exactly, but it's that second one that seems like the natural tale of this animal, right? Or the natural ending of this tale, uh, uh, to use the pun. Um, But instead, what do we see? A transformation. Um, As Baron and Luthien are transformed into mortal creatures, 
their story their story itself rises up a peg right as they're brought down their story is, uh, their story goes up um, I uh, uh, anyway I do um, I do definitely think that um, there is uh, there is a discernible movement towards the grander mythic view um, in this story which really does not begin that way and even never consistently rises there um, it's way too simple to say like the book of lost tales is really just like a, like a bunch of fairy tale stories which is like eventually going to become mythic again because that's not that's not it exactly they're mythic from the beginning explicitly mythic um, but this story is sort of more fairy tale than most but even it we see um, being kind of drawn upward as we as we go along well I'm going to let you go and I'm glad that my voice got a little bit better and I survived through the class that was good um, for next time we're going to uh, do we're going to do two like we did two classes on Tenuvia we're going to do two classes on uh, the uh, the the Turambar, uh story the tour the Turambar chapter um, I'm going to invite you to you don't have to read the whole th- I mean it's quite long of course it's the Turambar story after all um we're gonna talk about up through uh, when he goes back and kills Broda, um, looking for his mom. Um, that's where we're gonna stop. So in the uh, um, in 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 my edition, anyway, and many with the the bigger edition, the trade paperback editions are are, are, are pretty similar. It's um, page uh, what in page ninety one. Um, but anyway, so right after he goes back and he slays Brada in his in 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 his hall, uh, that's where we're gonna. So we're gonna we're gonna talk about the story leading up to there. And uh, um, so read that, and then also read the notes and commentary that relate to those earlier sections, and then we'll look at the conclusion of the story. Um, you know, we'll 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 get to the incest and suicide a week after next. Um, so, okay. Uh, if you have uh, questions or comments that you would like to add, um, uh, as Jana's uh, pointing out, um, I, I, I haven't scheduled. Um, I've, in the last few classes, I've scheduled extra bonus sessions uh, for Q and A and stuff, and I, I didn't do that in this class in part because I'm I'm feeling the impulse to kind of get along a little bit. And I'm already taking ten weeks on this class, which is more than I scheduled for the Book of Lost Tales Part One. Um, so since I've, I'm, I'm kind of taking it more slowly all the way through, I thought we could do without them, but that doesn't mean I want to discourage you from sending in questions for us to discuss. Um, so I do want to encourage you to, by email, send me questions. Um, uh, I'd be happy to, you know, for instance, begin next week, uh, with a little segment on some questions that you guys had about Tenuvio, uh, if you want to do that. So uh, I'm very happy to kind of work that in as we go along and we'll see, uh, We'll see if we can manage. We're still on schedule so far, so I feel good about that. All right, thanks, everybody. Uh, thank you for your good wishes for my improving health moving forward here. I think I'm going to go to bed now, see if I can uh, feel a little bit better tomorrow. But I should be better, I hope, next week. Thank you, everybody, uh, and good night. And we will see you for... I hope you're feeling better for the cheerful story we will be talking about next week. Uh, 
I don't think we'll have any of our happily ever after issues uh, starting next week. So thanks very much, everybody. Good night. <laughs>